Let me ask you another thought-provoking question. Imagine there was a life-enhancing drug, a lifestyle drug, you know, Cialis or Viagra, pain relief drug, or an antiarthritis drug that was really, really useful. How many deaths would it take from a drug like that before the FDA pulled it? A dozen, maybe fewer, certainly a hundred to be out of there. So what if there was a supermarket product that caused 500,000, half a million deaths a year? Okay. Which industry has produced the greatest financial returns over the last 50 years? One of these stocks, had you invested in 1968, you'd have made 20.6% annually. I think a dollar turns into $6,700. I didn't do that in my head. I looked it up and I'm just not sure I remember it. That 20.6% annual return for this stock compares with 11 and change for the Standard & Poor's. So you done pretty well out of the Standard & Poor's too. This must have been in a revolutionary industry. It had to have a great stock. It must have been an innovative place. Maybe it was computers. Was it satellites? Was it biotech? No. The stock I'm talking about is Altria, and it's a cigarette company. And it's true also for the last 100 years, returns from the cigarette industries, despite the legislative advancements from the last 50 years, have been the most profitable industry of all quoted U.S. companies. Welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better, where we explore how you can apply insights from visionary leaders and the most provocative philosophers and scientists of our time to make your life and our world a better place. Here's your host, author and speaker, Paul Gibbons. Hey, and welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better. This week, we're going to do something a little bit different due to uh, circumstances. I've had a cancellation from Steven Pinker and uh, rescheduling of a couple of my other guests. So this week, I'm going to talk about the book Truth Wars, which will pick up a number of the themes that we've talked about in the podcast, populism, democracy, fake news, critical thinking, cognitive biases. So there'll be echoes. You could see this really, this podcast as a summative podcast of some of the podcasts that you've hopefully been listening to and enjoying along the way. So let's get right into it. Last Halloween, I was walking behind a bunch of six-year-olds trick-or-treating with my brother-in-law, who's a very sensible, middle-of-the-road swing voter guy, not really given to dogmatism, nor is he really given to extreme political views. In those times, though, of late October 2016, I don't know about you, but I approached political questions as if I were walking on eggshells. I was afraid of what people might say, and the political climate was pretty charged in that last week of October. However, my brother-in-law, I asked him what he thought of the candidates, and he shared with me a piece of news, which perhaps you've heard, that Hillary Clinton was running a pedophile ring in the basement of Comet Pizzeria with John Podesta and with Anthony Weiner. This piece of news was shared widely, and one deranged fellow drove all the way across the country to shoot up Comet Pizza. Thankfully, he only put a few holes in the wall before he was shut down. The kind of funny part of a not very funny story is that Comet Pizza doesn't even have a basement. But I said to my brother-in-law, quite naturally, at the time, maybe you want to check that out with some of the fact checkers rather than get into it right then and there. His reply stunned me. 
He said, you can't trust the fact checkers. They're all biased. And I was so stunned by that. And I remember that conversation more than any other conversation from 2016. It had a greater impact on me than any other. And I decided then to write Truth Wars, which I began in January of 2017. Here's the question. Just how can you make decisions in a democracy if you can't even ascertain where a piece of really crazy news is fake, never mind some of the more subtle and nuanced arguments that, you know, necessarily take place when there are conflicting views on a subject. The Jeffersonian vision of democracy was that citizens would be able to discuss among themselves and forge agreements. And that would require an educated citizenry and that real democracy happened not during the punctuated elections every four years or every couple of years, but it happened during the day-to-day as we decided how that we want to govern ourselves. So that was scary, and I started off on this Truth Wars journey, and that took me very quickly into fake news. So fake news was the word of the year in 2017, the most Google searches and the most increase in Google searches and etc. So I'm going to talk about two kinds of fake news. I'm going to talk about real fake news and fake fake news. So there's a small town in Macedonia, the birthplace of Alexander the Great, and it's called Veles. Veles, they probably pronounce it. It's a bleak post-industrial city. It's got a population of under 50,000. It's a kind of European Gary, Indiana, or perhaps some Bradford in the United Kingdom. It's the home to over 100 pro-Trump websites. Now, let's pause for a minute and think about this. Why would 100 pro-Trump websites be owned and operated out of a tiny post-industrial town in Macedonia? Well, here's the answer. The MO of the Veles netpreneurs who run these sites is to troll the alt-right 4chan Reddit forums to find fake news and then to reshare it on their site, some of which have persuasive-sounding names, usapolitics.co. And on the few hundred Facebook accounts, they do likewise. They then use AdSense to generate clicks, and they make quite a lot of money. I understand that some of these sites make about $4,000 a month. And in a town where the average monthly wage is $371, these guys are kicking butt. Now, the Bellis guys don't really care who wins or who won, rather, the U.S. election. They don't have, if you want, a dog in the hunt. Their motives were purely financial. And when asked, they said basically that the anti-Hillary pro-Trump fake news got the most clicks. And so that's why Veles, Macedonia, is a big pro-Trump town. So sadly, this fake news industry is just one example. We now know since those days about Russian troll farms and the Russian RT network and fake Russian Facebook accounts. But we also have local America, sort of homegrown fake news kings. So here's a couple of headlines. Furious Chelsea Clinton thrown to the floor and handcuffed after Lindsey Graham links her scandal to the Clinton Foundation. Obama signs an executive order banning the national anthem and Melania Trump files for divorce. And what's interesting, as a study done by BuzzFeed's Craig Silverman suggests, that fake news gets approximately 
three times as many clicks as real news. So here we have a fake news industry generated out of the United States and out of Ellis, Macedonia and you know elsewhere around the world. And each of these emotive fake stories generates many times more clicks than the real stuff. And furthermore, in another study, it was shown that most readers cannot distinguish between the real stuff and the fake stuff. So when they're showing a fake news story and a real news story side by side, they don't reliably get which is which. Perhaps the most famous fake news conspiracy theorist, fake news provider, has 2.3 million YouTube subscribers. That's a lot of subscribers. One of his videos, just one, has 12 million hits. So this fellow believes that there's a new world order conspiracy in that the world's elites, globalists, as he, he calls them, are planning on exterminating 80% of the population so that they can live forever. I don't know quite how that would work, how killing 80% of the people would let 20% of the people live forever. However, that's one of his views. The other view is that 9-11 was an inside job. I'm not sure quite what that might mean. That means that the Pentagon conspired to bomb itself or take out the World Trade Center. It seems incredible. Sandy Hook, the massacre of, I believe, their kindergartners, and the Las Vegas shootings, the largest mass murder ever in U.S. history, are false flag operations. And the children, the dead six-year-olds, are crisis actors playing roles to make a sensational video that is supposed to enable the government to take away your guns. Obama is the global head of al-Qaeda. And as you'll hear later, this fellow is not the only person who thinks that. And the government is creating homosexuality apparently by doing something with juice boxes. So, really crazy stuff. However, 2.3 million YouTube followers who don't follow him for the comedic effect, but this guy has ardent believers and followers. And we'll talk about a bit later on just how the internet makes this possible through a networking effect, a mathematical phenomenon called the majority illusion. But moving on, this guy's called Alex Jones. Again, 12 million views on one video, 2.3 million subscribers, and Trump now president of the United States, has been on his show. In fact, not a long time ago, I believe it was December of 2015, while he was the Republican frontrunner, he was interviewed by Alex Jones. And you may say, well, that really association between the two of them, the fact that he was interviewed by Jones, I might be interviewed by Jones too, but only to try and contradict everything he says and stands for, However, Trump famously said at the end of the interview, your reputation is amazing. I won't let you down. You will be very, very impressed. If you want to fact check that, by the way, it's December 2015, Trump interview, it's on YouTube, and again, millions and millions of hits. So then that's a sort of real fake news, which includes things like conspiracy theories. There's also fake, fake news. Now, if you're a Trump supporter, I might already have lost you. However, nothing I've said here is about Trump's policies. If you like walls and tax cuts and deregulation and America first and travel bans and canceling the Paris Accord and the Iran deal, 
He's your guy. And I can't argue that. I can argue with specific policies. And in fact, I must say, I don't like any of those. However, he's deregulated business more than any president ever. And I think those are terrible ideas. I don't think much of his policies, but there's something different that we want to talk about here, which is his relationship with the truth. And I ask you, even if you're a Trump supporter, and again, I haven't contradicted any of his policies. If you believe in all that stuff, you can certainly believe that the country's heading in the right direction because, you know, to the man's credit, he's made progress on many of the issues, certainly the ones he's able to do without the legislative process. He's made progress on a lot of his campaign promises. So, however, let's talk about what's called post-truth politicians. The word of the year in 2016 and 2017, it was fake news. In 2016, it was post-truth. So what's post-truth? In the past, politicians have bent the truth. In fact, they're famous for it, the old joke about their lips being moving. But their statements, such as, I did not have sex with that woman, could be assessed against a standard of truth and falsehood. In a post-truth world, politicians speak with the truth as an irrelevant concern. What does that mean? It means they speak as if the truth didn't matter, <clears throat> not to convince with facts or argument, but to inflame and not to persuade a broad audience of their competence, but to stoke the emotions, their base, if you will, of a smaller audience. So what's the paradigmatic example? Trump claimed during the campaign, and this is a direct quote, inner city crime is reaching record levels. Whereas the facts say that violent crime by all measures has declined year after year since 1990, and now is as low is at a point not seen since the late 1960s. And a second Trump example, he claimed during an interview that President Obama is the founder of ISIS. So he was being interviewed by a, cons a conservative radio host who did not play gotcha with that remark. He gave him many chances to back down for that claim or to say, perhaps excuse it as a metaphor, but Trump doubled down time and time again, saying, I don't care he was the founder. So the first dimension of post-truth has just been described, and it's an appeal to emotions rather than truth. It isn't that Trump found a source of facts that crime was high. It's simply he doesn't care. And neither, we'll talk about this later too, it seems, do his followers. A second dimension of post-truth is using rhetorical moves, a prestidigitation, a sleight of hand when you're caught lying. You can see this with Trump's doubling down. Rather than beat a hasty retreat when you're caught with your pants around your ankles, the post-truth politician digs in. A very recent example now widely circulated is Rudy Giuliani, a Trump lawyer and sometime politician who said, presidents cannot be subpoenaed. When his TV host interviewer played an interview with him speaking from the 1990s where he was saying exactly the opposite. He talked over that clip while the interview was playing and he continued to maintain while his own words in parallel were being played back to him that he did not say that. It's an extraordinary thing to witness. The third dimension of post-truth is similar to the first. 
When facts are presented, is you label the story as fake news rather than the facts inside the story. This is the fake, fake news. So it's factual that a dossier was presented to the FBI which suggested some highly salacious things about Trump's behavior in Moscow. But rather than tackle the facts, perhaps with alternative sources, perhaps this can be disproved, the whole story was labeled fake news. Well, let's make a distinction. The story that there's a dossier compiled by an intelligence officer, which has been presented to the FBI, which the FBI took seriously enough to discuss with the then president, is a true story. All of that is true, and it's unarguably true. Now, what's inside may be false or inaccurate or misleading, but you can't label the whole dossier as fake news. And similarly, Roy Moore, as a Senate candidate, was accused by many women, including many teenagers, of sexually predatory behavior. He called this fake news. So again, he didn't repudiate the facts that described his behavior. It was the whole story was fake news, but it's factual that the accusations were made. The story that he had been so accused of sexually predatory behavior is a true story. Now, it may be true that the accusations are all false. It's an extraordinary thing to believe since there were so many. But fake news or labeling something fake news is a trump card. And I do intend that as a pun. The fourth dimension of fake news is to discount everything the media claims. This, as far as I'm concerned, started with Sarah Palin, and it includes not calling out specific stories, so it's even more general than the third dimension of fake news, which again doesn't challenge the facts inside the story with counterfacts, but just labels the whole story fake news. This calls everything that an outlet claims fake news, so CNN is fake news, is a frequent Trump claim. And again, there may be a separate podcast I'll do on what it means to systematically attack the media. But certainly, if you're an authoritarian politician, your activities are kept in check by the media, which gives transparency and line of sight on your activities, investigative reporting, and the Justice Department, which makes sure there's no wrongdoing in your administration. To systematically attack the media as fake news and the Justice Department, the FBI, as corrupt and uh, politically motivated institutions is an authoritarian move. Now, again, just those are because those are things that an authoritarian does, you know, doesn't equal Trump is an authoritarian, you know, fascist style dictator or any of this kind of extraordinary hysterical rhetoric on the left. However, what authoritarians, what dictators do, and we're reminded that Hitler was democratically elected, is that you then systematically try and dismantle all the institutions that would hold you to account, everything that's a check on your power, and this is a Putin move, it's a Hitler move, all those checks and balances go out the window. And so that's one of the things that's most worrying about the fourth dimension of post-truth politics is that the attack on institutions is, from my point of view, really worrying. So one thing that the brand new fact-checking industry has wrought is analytics on politician truthfulness. I believe that 
fact checkers, if they can maintain their attempts at political neutrality, and if you go to factcheck.org, politico.org, if you go to those sites, Snopes, you'll see that for the most part, or certainly before the rise of Trump, they were fairly balanced in their fact-checking of the left and right. It's a little bit difficult for them to be balanced at the moment, and I'm about to tell you why. So you can criticize fact-checkers, as my brother-in-law did, because today, for every one story there is about a politician on the left, there are probably three or four for Trump or some of his allies. Well, why is that? Are they, have they abandoned this ideal of being neutral, objective, and balanced? Maybe not. By one account, Obama told 18 lies, and I say an account, a research study with strict criteria, told 18 lies during his terms in office. The most famous of which is you can keep your health care plan. It's maybe his most famous lie, even though, to give him a get-out-of-jail-free card, that's in fact a prediction and not a statement of fact. And... We can certainly agree it became false, even though that might well have been his intention is to create a healthcare system where that might still be the case. However, 18 lies during his terms in office, that's 96 terms. Is that right? Eight years times 12 months, 96. Trump told 103 lies in his first 10 months. So let's do the math together. That's 96 months from Obama. That's about a lie every five months. Well, right now, Trump is averaging more than 10 per month. There's an article just this morning on CNN. He had a tweet storm this morning, and there were 11 mistruths in three tweets, which is pretty good going in 280 characters. However, among his base, Trump's insanely popular. I teach a course on business ethics to MBA students, and they were asked to pick the most ethical leader they could think of and write a story about why they're an ethical leader, or studying ethical leadership. One of them picked Trump and went on to give many, many paragraphs on why he thought Trump was an example of all the examples that you could have picked in the world, why Trump was an ex- his you know, preferred example of an ethical leader. So in one of my most quoted quotes on the internet, I say, When Trump supporters say they believe Trump, it isn't so much an epistemic that is a truth claim. They are doing something else with their language in that they're professing loyalty. I'm a member of the tribe. This happened also with Roy Moore, where it was asked whether these women were believed or disbelieved. And when people said they disbelieved the women who were accusing him, it was more like, I'm loyal to this guy, Roy Moore. He, you know, on the whole shares my values except for pedophilia. Sorry about that. That was a little snarky. But it's much the same way when a Catholic goes to church and says body of Christ during communion. Most of them don't literally, I mean, some do, but most of them don't literally think that they have a 2,000-year-old body in their hand and they're eating Christ's body. But by proclaiming the body of Christ, they're attesting their faithfulness to the Catholic doctrine. And there are some people who believe in transubstantiation, that it literally something is happening up there. Which, But let's pass over that. It's, a, it's more an attesting of faithfulness than it is, yeah, this guy always tells the truth. Now, I actually think we'll get past fake news. I think fact checkers are a step in the right direction. And a bit later on, I'm going to talk a little bit about the internet and how the internet which was supposed to make us smarter, it was supposed to make us more connected. 
And while that's sometimes true, you could argue that the internet has made us dumber and more polarized. I'm trying to think the last time I tried to get somewhere without a GPS in my hand. I'm not sure of how I used to survive in my four and a half decades of my life before GPS. Anyhow, what happens? 44% of us get our news first from Facebook. So Facebook, in short history, never set out to be a news organization. And still today, certainly until 2016, 2017, Facebook saw themselves as a blank canvas on which users could paint their lives, pictures of kids and cats. And yes, they might share the occasional news story, something like that, but that was not, you know, when Zuckerberg was in his dorm room, was not his vision of creating a news organization. But now with 44% of us getting our news from Facebook, guess what? It has become, if not a news organization, uh, it's certainly a news provider. And so you get into these interesting distinctions now. I just read, I think, in the Economist magazine today, Facebook actually has a thousand people reviewing content in Germany because Germany has passed a very strict new law on pro-terrorism stuff on websites, hate speech on Facebook. And there's a, I think, a 50 million euro fine for a company such as Facebook, platform company which uh, permits this stuff to exist. So they've got a thousand people coming through German Facebook content trying to, uh, if you want, remove fake content. But back to Facebook anyway, we have a phenomenon today called a filter bubble. So the news that you get, the 44% of us who get news first from Facebook, is that you it's curated algorithmically. I think we all know this. It's according to your preferences. So maybe your preferences are Harper's, The Economist, the Atlantic and the New York Times, but not everybody is vigilant and not everybody likes that stuff. If you start to click on clickbait or you click on fake news or you click on, you know, the Daily Mail or some of these, you know, pseudo news organizations, you're going to get a lot more of that. It also means you're insulated from opposing news. So if you're constantly clicking Breitbart and the Daily Caller and Fox, that's what you're going to get. In fact, that's all you'll get. You sure won't get Mother Jones. And this creates, of course, a phenomenon I've just described called a filter bubble. Filter bubbles polarize your brain. And they polarize our national discourse, which is why our national discourse in the United States is more hateful, and in the UK too, but mostly in the United States, is more hateful than I think than I've ever seen. So there is good news out there. I just want to put in a footnote here. There is technology which will get you opposing news. There's a, I can't remember the name of the app. It's, uh, if you put in... Um, burst your bubble or apps or something like that in in Google, you'll come up with a couple of apps you can install. I think they're free. And what they'll do is every now and then they'll drop something in there from the opposite side. And I certainly I certainly took that up as soon as as soon as they came out. I do want to uh, filter bubbles is one phenomenon. Third phenomenon I want to talk about is called the majority illusion. I alluded to the illusion earlier. The majority illusion means that in your filter bubble, even if you subscribe to a really, really crazy fringe view. So say you subscribe to Alec Jones, right? Say you click on Alec Jones websites. It is going to appear mainstream to you because your self-selected friends and algorithmically selected news is all you are going to get. And it will seem to you like you're the only reasonable, you know, that all of your friends are the only reasonable people. And when you hear something that's 
strange or alternative point of view. It's going to sound more alien than you're going to, this is a majority illusion, think that no sensible person and certainly not the majority of people could ever believe. But some of these things, you know, clearly are fringe. So conspiracy theories are one thing that have flourished on the internet. And this is a mathematical explanation, an algorithmic explanation of why the craziness in the world that we have today is increasing. The mainstream fringe is the fourth dimension of this internet brief talk. So scary folk like Alec Jones uh, were, when they were scattered across the country and maybe he had, you know, maybe conspiracy theories, there are 50,000, 100,000, it depends on which one. You know, I sat next to a woman on a plane who was reading a book right now who believed we didn't land on the moon. They were scattered and they had no way of forming community. So one of the great things one of the things I enjoy most about social media, particularly Facebook, is that we can form communities. But that means that some really crazy stuff, and this explains to my point of view, the rise of the neo-Nazis and the alt-right partly, is that we're able to coalesce. So these crazy fringe views, if they can be loud enough, they, they can organize well enough with enough passion. And neo-Nazis are passionate people, you know, they're like passionate in a bad way, but but they're very good. And so if you form a community, maybe there's 50,000, 100,000, maybe there's a quarter of a million of them, maybe it's half a million. I don't really know the numbers. I don't think anybody really knows the numbers in the United States. It's a passionate group of people who have the most powerful tool ever invented for getting together and organizing. And so finally, we're back to the subject of Facebook and politics. There, Facebook lived under the fantasy that it was not a news organization, that it was a neutral platform. And that was, you know, their, in a sense, defense, even through 2015 and 2016, as fake news was growing, as election disinformation spread, there was a corporate shrug of the shoulders. We're a news organization. We're just a blank campus. We're a platform. And while corporately, Facebook will lean left, you know, I suspect Zuckerberg and Marissa Meyer lean left of center. In fact, the right has been far smarter than the left at using social media, Russian bots and trolls and fake news, at turning Facebook into a disinformation planet. In a sense, playing the algorithms. In a sense, also playing all of us. And while the Obama campaign of 2008 used analytics and targeting much more cleverly than anyone had done before, the right and some of the big money thrown at Cambridge Analytics, I believe the chap's name is Mercer, have far overtaken the capability that was, in a sense, pioneered by the Obama campaign in 2008. There's some big, big money and some big international money behind corruption of Facebook, which now is one of our major news information platforms. Again, 44% of us get our news first from Facebook. We should be worried about Russian disinformation on Facebook. We should be worried that people like Alec Jones can seemingly attract 12 million people to watch one video or 2.3 million. Now, does it mean I shut him down? No, I happen to be an advocate for free speech. But what does it mean? And I'll get onto this in a bit more detail later on, is that we need to be much, much smarter as news consumers. There are also, by the way, I should add crackpots on the left, you know, and I do strongly believe that Trump is more malign and malicious with truth and hate speech than other politicians. The left have their crazies too. They're just much less clicked. I mean, have you heard of Alternet? 
Have you heard of Counterpunch? Have you heard of Indie Media? Have you heard of American Prospect? Have you heard of any of those? But we have heard of Brightbrook and Barton Fox. They're much more successful. And again, I do believe the far right are much more successful. And perhaps in a separate podcast, I'll talk about media bias, because that's one of the things I researched for Truth Wars, uh, which is really interesting. It's a cry uh, from the right that the media are hopelessly biased against them. And I'll give you the headline now. It's not only false. I think the opposite is true. I think the media are way to the right of center and heading right, further right as we speak. But more data to back up that pretty strong claim in another podcast. So the left are pretty stupid on some things. You know, a couple of examples. In 2000, the Center for Disease Control declared measles eradicated. By 2017, this eradicated disease came back, and there were 78 cases and more than 8,000 children had been exposed to measles, let's remember, can be fatal. In Europe, there were 35 measles deaths, and the World Health Organization described that as an unacceptable tragedy because, in a sense, measles had been eradicated. So the anti-vax stuff is mostly hippie Californians with liberal arts degrees who want to bring their kids up naturally. Because of the time I spent in the 1990s in the spiritual New Age community when I was on my personal growth journey, everything I was heavily, heavily, heavily into spiritual spirituality and religion. In fact, one of the things... I was somewhat famous for in the 1990s was on uh, something I wrote on spirituality at work. Uh, so I was very into this stuff. And so, you know, the community today still have thousands of coaches and therapists and people in my network. And lots of those people, they lean heavy left, in fact, 100% left, something like that, are the anti-vaxxers. And, you know, it's an extraordinary thing to find someone with a, you know, PhD in epidemiology and an MD degree who's been studying vaccination for 40 years, debating with an actress whether the, whether vaccines cause autism or the Center for Disease Control is the center of a great conspiracy to poison children with vaccines. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary thing. And so the left are pretty stupid on that. They're stupid on GMOs and nuclear energy. There is a, those two technologies are not problem-free, of course, they're area, but they're areas where the left has irrationally opposed progress without going into the technical details of GMOs and nuclear energy. They may have been potentially very, very useful and good technologies, particularly if you're concerned about feeding the world and if you're concerned about carbon-free energy, because nuclear energy doesn't generate carbon dioxide. But it's fair to say that the left gets hysterical about them, and that skewered the chance, I think, that they could become safe and useful technologies. And of course, there are problems to solve, nuclear waste disposal, but I think this hysteria has prevented us from solving those problems. They've, in a sense, put the whole thing to bed, and I don't think we easily get away from nuclear energy. I think, you know, it's one of the most promising sources. We just need to be, you know, technologically clever about making it safe. Anyhow, hysteria and craziness on the left. Our information space, and we've been talking about corruption of the information space, is not just corrupted as voters. We live in the information age. You could date it from you know the early days of mainframe computers in the 1960s and 1970s when they became you know widespread. They found themselves from you know government offices and government institutions and, and, and big corporations into you know everybody had a microcomputer or a mini computer in the 1960s and 70s. I date the information age rather from when the internet became widely available in the early 1990s. I'm not sure that's a commonplace treatment. 
But let me give you a thought experiment, if I might, an information age thought experiment. Imagine that there was a product in the supermarket right next to the orange juice. How many deaths a year would be too many before that thing was pulled from the shelves forever and ever? Just think about it. Supermarket product, some people take it, dozen deaths, 100 deaths, two deaths. Let me ask you another thought-provoking question. Imagine there was a life-enhancing drug, a lifestyle drug, you know, Cialis or Viagra, pain relief drug, or an anti-arthritis drug that was really, really useful. How many deaths would it take from a drug like that before the FDA pulled it? Dozen, maybe fewer, certainly a hundred to be out of there. So what if there was a supermarket product that caused 500,000, half a million deaths a year? Okay, which industry has produced the greatest financial returns over the last 50 years? One of these stocks, had you invested in 1968, you'd have made 20.6% annually. I think a dollar turns into $6,700. I didn't do that in my head. I looked it up and I'm just not sure I remember it. That 20.6% annual return for this stock compares with 11 and change for the Standard & Poor's. So you've done pretty well out of the Standard & Poor's too. This must have been in a revolutionary industry. It had to have a great stock. It must have been an innovative place. Maybe it was computers. Was it satellites? Was it biotech? No. The stock I'm talking about is Altria, and it's a cigarette company. And it's true also for the last 100 years, returns from the cigarette industries, despite the legislative advancements from the last 50 years have been the most profitable industry of all, of all quoted U.S. companies. So what's the history of this? After World War I, doctors noticed a huge spike in lung cancers and they began to suspect cigarettes. They had no proof. They began to publicize their findings, but they didn't have a causal relationship. What does that mean? They had an association. So statistical sampling, correlation, not Caucasian, they noticed that the incidence of lung cancers was correlated with smoking, but proves nothing. The tobacco industry, 100 years ago, had a very easy get-out-of-jail card. Then, in the late 1940s and early 1950s, they proved causality in mice. They did randomly controlled trial. You take a mice, bunch of nice white mice. Uh, some of them do smoke and some of them don't smoke. You start them smoking, obviously. And you compare the incidence of cancer in the control group and in the experimental group. And no surprise to anyone living in this century, but the smoking mice got cancer faster. And I, funnily enough, I used to do cancer research when I was a teenager. I worked in a cancer research lab. And one of the things that we were testing then was a toxin from cigarette smoke on mice. We were trying to understand the effect of that toxin on DNA and RNA synthesis. So this is back in the dark days of the 1970s. Anyway, in 1952, the causality was proved and Reader's Digest published an article called Cancer by the Carton. The Surgeon General, Luther Terry, of the United States, about a decade later, published a report. And I'm going to quote from the report. Remember now, this is 54 years ago. So I'm going to quote the language and pay attention to the strength of the language in this report. Cigarette smoking is causally related to lung cancer in men. The magnitude of the effect of cigarette smoking far outweighs all other factors. 
Cigarette smoking is much more important than occupational exposures. So you can think of asbestos or coal mining in the causation of lung cancer in the general population. Cigarette smoking is the most important of the causes of chronic bronchitis in the United States and increases the risk of dying from emphysema. Although the causative role, again, these scientists, he's using careful language, although the causative role of cigarette smoking in deaths from coronary disease, so we have cancer, we have chronic bronchitis, we have emphysema, and those are causal relationships. So he says, although the causative role of cigarette smoking in deaths from coronary disease is not proven, the committee considers it prudent from a public health viewpoint to assume that the established association, the correlation, has causative meaning rather than to spend our judgment until no uncertainty remains. So he's just associated causally cigarette smoking with three diseases and associationally or correlatively with a fourth disease. So that was 54 years ago. And uh, in 2015, $700 billion worth of cigarettes were sold. And that's 5.5 trillion cigarettes. And that generated $40 million in profits, which is more than the combined profits of Coke, Walt Disney, General Mills, Federal Express, American Telephone and Telegraph, Google, McDonald's, and Starbucks. Come mind. And as we've seen, that allows those companies to spend about a million dollars an hour or about $9 billion a year on advertising. Let's just go back to that number. That's a million dollars an hour on advertising. And smoking is taxed, generating tax revenues of $17 billion. Uh, I think that was in 2010. It's subsequently fallen. And the industry employs 200,000 people. So there's a lot, a lot of money in cigarettes. However, let's go back to our first thought questions. How many, imagine there was a product in the supermarket next to the OJ. How many deaths a year would be too many? If there was a drug, how many deaths a year would be too many? Here we have a product, which is the greatest source of revenue for convenience stores, incidentally as well. People still buy, die by the millions, 500,000 in the US alone. It causes nine in 10 lung cancer deaths and increases the likelihood of catching lung cancer or of contracting lung cancer, I should say, 25-fold. It dwarfs everything else. It's more deaths than HIV. It's more deaths than all other drug use. It's more deaths than alcohol use, more deaths than car accidents, more deaths than gun deaths combined. Contrast this with terrorism. Here's another thought experiment question. Terrorism was the focus of the Trump campaign. It's in the news, eh, not so much daily anymore, but certainly, certainly it's in the news often enough. It's one of the main foci, certainly, of the Trump campaign. Terrorism in this last century, so how, how many years are we into this century? 18 years, has claimed 3,277 deaths. 2,902 of those were on 9-11. So if you, and of course, that's an outlier. So that's a mode of about 17 deaths a year. So compare that with a half million deaths a year from cigarettes. Compare the political capital being made out of fighting terrorism. Compare the resources being spent, Transport Safety Administration, National Security Administration, Department of Defense, Federal FAA in the United States. Compare the resources being thrown at terrorism with effectively uh, cigarette companies, although they've been restricted in recent decades, still able to market and sell their products on supermarket shelves. This boggles my mind. So I, you know, maybe it'll boggle your mind. Maybe I'm a little bit crazy. The strategy that, I mean, the question is how did tobacco do this? How do they continue to do it? 
And it has a name. It's called Tobacco Strategy. And I want to refer you to a book that I've mentioned earlier on the podcast called Merchants of Doubt. But in very brief, they threw some huge sums of money at the problem. So back in the 1950s, they founded the Tobacco Research Institute. So in Washington, D.C. today, perhaps around the world, there are thousands of so-called research institutes or think tanks. I like to call them fake tanks. And what they are is supposedly research institutions without a scientist in sight. That's actually not quite true. The Tobacco Research Institute did get some friendly scientists on board. And the idea was that they could not disprove what scientists were finding about tobacco. They could not disprove it, but they could spread doubt. They could take the essential uncertainty that is part of all science and present it to the public and the media. And of course, the tobacco industry had the biggest advertising budget of any other industry. So if you're a timer Newsweek and you have multi-page spreads for Marlboro, you risk losing your major source of revenue. And like today, they persuaded the media to teach the controversy. So it's an incredibly adept and clever uh, strategy. Pure genius. One, I believe he worked for Hill and Knowlton, um, said, well, if you can do this for tobacco, you can do it for anything. Which was a really moment of radical self-honesty. If you can keep tobacco on the shelves by using this strategy, well, you can do it for anything. Well, now I'm going to ask you, how is this genius strategy being used today? The people who were the architects and great brains, great public relations brains behind the tobacco strategy are still hard at work in your lives today. One of the genius things the cigarette companies did as part of the tobacco strategy is they turned government attempts to regulate them, not an attempt to protect consumers, but they changed the conversation into an attack on freedom. Look, here comes big government. Attacking your freedom is your right to smoke cigarettes. We need to keep big government out of your lives. And that tobacco strategy not only changed the relationship, altered the slowed, stopped the regulation, the banning, perhaps even of cigarettes, but it changed the national conversation. And we were able now to see government as the enemy because it attacks freedom rather than government doing which, you know, I think the people, you know, who are the framers of the U.S. Constitution had in mind that government, I could be wrong, I'm not a constitutional scholar, could have a protective effect on society. Again, if you could do this for tobacco, you can do it for anything. And I'm going to leave it for you to think about where is the strategy today to spread doubt on science to teach the controversy to throw huge money at a problem so that the public are misinformed and disinformed and legislators are paralyzed because of a, the, the science, quote-unquote, isn't certain. And this all got me thinking about lobbying. In the 1960s, there were a few dozen lobbyists in Washington, D.C. That's increased to around 11,000. The annual spending of lobbyists in Washington, D.C. is $3.37 billion. But the influence of corporations doesn't stop with lobbying. There's advertising. We've already seen the tobacco industry, $9 billion a year. Armies of lawyers on staff and hire, external counsels hired. You know, a company like Goldman Sachs or Exxon will have thousands of lawyers and political contributions. So let me go through those again. Lobbying, advertising and public relations, armies of internal lawyers, external lawyers, and political contributions means corporate influence in our lawmaking process is substantial. 
And, you know, in my opinion, we can discuss this during another podcast, far, far too much. However, much as we want money out of politics, how do you get the money out of politics without restricting free speech? Well, here's the thing. Democracy and capitalism are only a few hundred years old. We need to be humble about the youth of these two systems, and they have huge benefits. We need to learn how to make those work for us. We need to learn how to get undue financial influence out of politics and out of lawmaking and out of government, but without restricting right to protest and right to free speech. So it's a difficult game. I don't think we've solved it yet, and it may take us may take us 100 years if we, you know, manage to hang around until then. So all of this corruption of the information space, which I've discussed, all of the post-truth politics, all of the fake news, all of the corporate influence on what I think is, you know, the most extraordinary example is the tobacco example, is I think pretty bad. And I, one of the reasons I've enjoyed writing Truth Wars so much is to be able to research all of this kind of stuff and make some arguments. But here... I'm going to cover this only very briefly because we're running out of time. It's what makes it worse is that all of this information, disinformation, misinformation in the information age hits a very flawed information processor because our brains weren't designed for the internet age. You know, it's only 20 years old. You know, evolution is a, I'm sorry, I'm wrong to say it's a thousand year process, hundred thousand year process. Yeah, uh, you know, our brains are are changing, and uh, but the genetic transformation in you know the way brains are structured, the DNA that you know our brains may well look different ten thousand years from now due to the effects of the information age and what comes after it. But for right now, we're stuck with the brains that you know we're chasing around on the savanna five and ten thousand years ago. So what are those brains like? Well, you've heard some of this in the earlier podcasts. We have system one and system two reasoning. System one, intuitive, gut feel, reactive, pattern recognition, really, really fast. You know, really, really accurate for some things, not for everything. System two, more rational, more deliberative, willing to consider the facts. We have something called the backfire effect. When you offer facts to someone who's ideologically committed, you strengthen their resistance. They don't say, thanks, I was so misinformed before I met you. You know, that never happened. There's something called tribal reasoning. That's an interesting thing. You know, people have strong views on climate change on the left and on the right. You know, my left-wing friends, you know, greatest problem facing mankind. On the right, it's all a right-wing hoax. Or I think what Trump said was a Chinese conspiracy theory to, you know, disenfranchise American industry. However, all of these people join a squad about it. So your typical climate scientist, your typical earth scientist guy, you know, did all his high school chemistry, did his uh, college uh, college earth science, uh, did his PhD, his postdoctoral thing, you know, been a professor for 20 years, gone to 300 conferences, you know, whatever. These guys have been studying this their whole life. And yet you can still have some lawyer guy on television who has a ninth grade, you know, degree in ninth grade education in earth sciences arguing with these people now i've never told an engineer how to build a bridge or a pilot how to fly a plane but it seems amazing to me that you can have someone with no education in climate change sitting down and arguing with some dummy who has a ninth grade science education but that's what happens the climate change debate 
has become tribal. And so it wasn't always the case. John McCain famously ran an ad that was really pro-climate, if you will, and anti-climate you know, change. I mean, he said, you know, basically, it's one of our greatest problems. It's a problem I'm going to solve if I become president. That was 2008. Now in 2018, 100% of the Republican candidates for president in the 2016 election all denied it was a problem. And in some ways, it's a litmus test of whether you're a good Republican. And this is an example of something called tribal thinking. Now, thought experiment. Try and tell someone who's a Seahawks fan that they ought to be a Dallas Cowboys fan. Try and use reasons to do so. It doesn't work. And climate change is like that. It's this sports team loyal type loyalty. I'm a Republican, and the shibboleth for a Republican today is climate change is a hoax. And I find it a remarkable thing. It's another example of how, and on the left and on the right, uh, we've become so less rational than I hope we might be in the early days of the 21st century. We have something called motivated reasoning. We confuse what we like with what is true. That pays into something called the self-serving bias. We tend to believe what's in our interest to believe. And so these are some of the if you will, the cognitive problems, I'm going to have a chapter on that in Truth Wars, certainly, because, you know, you have this information age, disinformation and misinformation, hitting a flawed information processor that was equipped for a simpler time. And I think you have a recipe for trouble. So that's what Truth Wars is about. Now, briefly, what are the answers to the problem? What are the solution? You know, it's one of the great fantasies, particularly, I think this is a left-wing idiocy, is that if only people on the right read more books, we all be in better shape. I don't think there's any truth to that. You know, if a guy who's a Breitbart or a news watcher wakes up one morning and says, I think I'm going to read the New York Times for the rest of my life, it's just not going to happen. So education will be part of it, and we need to educate people. We can't, I don't think, indoctrinate people with an ideology of one kind or another. What you can do is teach them to think critically, and that is mostly, unfortunately, taught in philosophy departments. And that is not something that's available in U.S. high schools. Very, I mean, it's available in some, very few. Critical thinking skills, and it is finding their way into business in the MBA program that I teach. You know, we have an hour on critical thinking in a, you know, 10-week program. You know, it is taught in some of the humanities. By and large, we don't teach critical thinking. And critical thinking is a very special kind of thinking. We have a podcast on it with Linda Elder, who talks a little bit about why it's a special kind of thinking, what you need to do to become a better critical thinking. It's mostly today, unfortunately, taught in philosophy departments. And if we are going to be savvy consumers of consumer information and voter information and stuff that's relevant to our lives, critical thinking is something we're going to have to learn. I think also we're going to have to learn how science education has been something I'm going to do a podcast on public understanding of science. Well, let me just uh, let me just frame it this way. Who cares how many moons Jupiter has or the atomic number of selenium? A citizen or a voter doesn't need to know that stuff. They need to know how science works. They need to understand the scientific method and when it's valid, when it applies, and when it doesn't apply. They need to understand correlation and causation. They need to understand probabilities and risk. Science is the only good method, well, it's the best method, it's not the only method, for determining a causal relationship. We talked a little bit about with the mice and the smoking, a randomly controlled trial being the best way. If your effect is seen in the experimental group, you have causality, otherwise you don't. We need to understand methods like that because so much of what you read in the newspaper, science says, particularly in the social sciences, is just causality. 
And you know, there's much more we can do on that later. But if you want to listen to a podcast where we talk a little bit about the scientific method, listen to the one I did with Massimo Piliucci about 10 weeks ago on stoicism and pseudoscience. And then finally, the last plank of the education, I think this has to be an an economics and finance. You know, I think we need people who understand economic arguments. So when Trump goes on about trade, and I, you know, I don't want to turn this into a Trump bash. It already has probably more than I'd wished, something like that. He gave a speech on trade the other day, and I literally thought this guy's never taken a course in economics. He has not taken economics 101. His ignorance of the fundamentals of trade, he sees basically if we have an 800,000, well, I think our trade deficit with China is 375 billion. That trade deficit for him is um, the only criterion by which you evaluate trade. It's basically a testament to the fact that American consumers are very, very wealthy. And because they're very, very wealthy, they buy a lot of shit. So it's evidence rather than we necessarily have a bad trade deal with China is that we're a much wealthier company and that's buying much, you know, higher value add goods. We buy more than we sell. You know why? Because we're wealthy. Now, there's a lot more to it than that. But I think he misunderstands that principle theory and he, and, he, and he thinks of trade deficits as like theft, which is, you know, a remarkably, remarkably ignorant thing. And if you do study freshman economics, you remember the 1930s and the Smoot-Halley tariff, which is so nicely covered in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, how trade wars, uh, it was called beggar thy neighbor, may destroy all of us and they may, may bring down, you know, they may lead, you know, we're used to fairly steady economic growth punctuated in 2008, 2009 with a, you know, really terrible hiccup punctuated in 1929 through 1939, roughly with a, you know, sort of sustained downturn, the Great Depression. There were recessions in the early 70s and the late 70s and the late 1980s. You know, by and large, we've kept growing. But, you know, I think if we undo the World Trade Organization, the global economic order, we cannot take sustained economic growth for granted. So in conclusion, we live in an information age with uh, a cognitive processing machine that's less than well-equipped and not well enough educated to thrive in the information age. And so that's kind of the project from Truth Wars. And so... Thanks for listening. The Truth Wars project is now 18 months and uh, it's been slow getting a publisher and because of, you know, more secular concerns like earning a crust and doing keynote speeches and researching other blogs and making the Think Bigger, Think Better podcast, it's going slower than I could have imagined or could have hoped, but I wanted to uh, let readers and listeners know, you know, the sorts of things that I'm thinking about, the sort of things that I promised to cover in the book. So that's that. And thank you for listening. I'll put links to everything in the show notes. I'll put links to podcasts that I've referred to, some of the books that I've referred to, and I hope also that you find those interesting and useful. Thank you for liking the podcast on Facebook or wherever you might find it. Thank you for comments you give me. I'd love to know what you heard of this show since it's the first of its kind. Thanks for your support on Patreon. If you're one of the donors that uh, helps me out with five bucks a podcast here and there to, uh, you know, I'd like to continue to keep this podcast self-funding. I'd love to do more of it. God knows how I do that and finish the book at the same time. Um, so yeah, those are some of my thoughts. I really hope you enjoy them. And I look forward to hearing more from you, hearing back from you and to talking to you during the next episode. Thanks. To celebrate the launch of the show and to thank you all for listening, I'm going to be giving away books, lots and lots of books. All you have to do is leave a review in iTunes. 
We're going to raffle off a book every single week for 12 weeks. So head on over to paulgibbons.net slash iTunes to get easy to follow directions and let me know the title of your review to make sure that you're entered to win. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Think Bigger, Think Better. Great ideas are great, but this isn't gospel. Share your critical thinking in the comments. Where do I disagree? What insights were most powerful? If you got value, don't forget to share the value by sharing the podcast. Finally, to get information on book and blog releases and new video content, head over to paulgibbons.net and join the community of thinkers talking about using science and philosophy to make our world a better place.